the red flag flying here. Hi everyone. Hi everyone. Welcome to this event on behalf of London Transport Regional uh, RMT. Um, this is for International Workers Memorial Day, which commemorates those who've lost their lives at work through work-related injury and illness. Beyond that, though, it highlights how preventable many of those deaths actually are. More people are killed at work every year than are killed in wars. And this is because employers have decided that workers' safety was just not important enough. Events like this one seek to establish international solidarity, promote campaigns and improvements to workers' safety. The slogan is, and has always been, remember the dead, fight like hell for the living. For 2021, the theme is health and safety is a fundamental workers' right. Our event today is focused specifically on women's health and safety. For too long, issues affecting women in particular have been dismissed as not industrial issues, not workers' issues, as fringe issues, little luxuries. This has got to stop, and it's got to be a major focus for our event today. <clears throat> Over the last year across the world that we've had this global pandemic, and it's had an adverse effect on gender equality. It's quite well publicized that men are likely, more likely to die from COVID than women. However, women have been disproportionately affected in numerous other ways. Women's jobs, for instance, are 1.8 to the economic crisis than those of men. And that's because men are seen as having a right to a job and we are not. The burden of unpaid care work brought by the COVID-19 illness itself, the subsequent school closures, closure of childcare facilities, vastly impact women's ability to engage in paid work. Many women workers are being forced to make impossible choices. In the United States, one survey found that one in four women was thinking about leaving or reducing paid work because of company inflexibility during the pandemic caring responsibilities and stress. For women in work, we are overrepresented in many of the sectors worst affected by the crisis, such as hospitality, food service, retail, education and healthcare, where jobs have been retained, employers across by skimping on health and safety. We've got this crisis where we all told wash your hands, wash your hands as frequently as possible to keep the virus at bay. Three billion people across the world have no access to running water. There's these enormous inequalities in the whole thing. There's another global crisis that I wanna talk about today. This is one that was rampant before COVID and has been worsened by it. And that's an epidemic of violence against women. We've seen an increase in domestic violence in many countries during the lockdown. According to the United Nations Population Fund, every three months of lockdown could bring with it 15 million more cases of domestic violence than we'd normally see. The protection that we'd normally rely on in the forms of shelters, support workers, etc., has not been increased, it's been cut. It's worsened the effect and it's cut off the escape route for women affected by issue. 
I want to talk here about the Istanbul Convention. This is officially known as the Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence. The, signature the signatory countries are required <clears throat> to adopt the statement that violence against women is a violation of human rights and a form of discrimination. They're required to exercise due diligence when preventing violence, protecting victims and prosecuting perpetrators. They're required to criminalize psychological violence, stalking, sexual harassment, sexual violence, forced marriage, FGM, forced abortion, forced sterilization, so-called honor crimes, which are nothing of the sort. The convention mandates an independent expert body to implement the convention. In March, 2012, Turkey was the first country to ratify the convention, disgracefully. In March 2021, Turkey withdrew from the convention by presidential edict. Our sisters in Turkey are outraged at this. Even while the convention was still officially in place, at least 300 women were murdered in Turkey in 2020. 171 died in suspicious circumstances, but there's been no, no prosecutions for murder in those cases. Since the beginning of this year, 70 women have already been killed by men in acts of domestic violence in Turkey. Light sentences and reduced sentences for men who have attacked and murdered Turkish women have sparked outrage. But the other thing they do is have a chilling effect on the behavior of women. The women know that if they're attacked, the guilty get away with it, and the men know it too, and some of them are using it. Back home, we were all outraged by the press reaction to the kidnapping and murder of Sarah Everard. Why was she walking alone after dark? They were asking. Why was she out socializing We in the lockdown? What was she wearing? Women should stay at home. Well, we workers, we can't stay at home. As shift workers, we're walking at night. We're walking in the early hours of the morning. As activists, subsequent to that, we were outraged by the sight of police officers manhandling women to silence them for daring to protest. Our right to protest is under attack. It's got to be defended. Women are workers, trade unionists and activists. Our issues are industrial issues. We've long passed the point of being dismissed, told that we're not real workers, that we have to fit in with a man's world, that we have to put up and shut up, that our safety is not a priority, that violence and harassment against us is part of the job. We're not having it. We're not putting up with it any longer. On our panel today, we've got Janine Booth, London Underground Stations worker, author, activist and poet, Mel Mullins, London Underground train driver, RMT rep, and all-round fighter for justice. We've got Kat Cray, London Underground Station's health and safety rep, proud geek and activist. We've got Shelley Asquith, the TUC safe, health, safety and wellbeing officer, or we will have Shelley Asquith shortly. We've got Linda Martin, test train operator, our 
RMT rep and long-standing activist. Anne-Marie Harrington, RMT rep for station staff, secretary of the RMT National Women's Advisory Committee, and I'll be chairing this meeting. So the first of our speakers that I'd like to introduce today will be Kat Cray. And come on board, Kat. Hi everyone. Uh, my name's my name's Kat, as Maria's just said. Um, to sketch out to you uh, what my role in the union is, uh, various things, which will be the same answer for all of the women on this panel. So I'm a local health and safety rep uh, for the north end of the metropolitan line, and I'm also a tier two health and safety rep, which means I have full time responsibility. I'm on full time release. I'm coming to the end of a of a three year stint. Uh, and that's with three other colleagues for stations on, on London Underground. But I'm also an active member of my branch, which is Neesden branch, which deals with basically the north end of the Metropolitan Line and the north end of the Jubilee Line. Uh, and I'm a membership secretary. And, and part of the reason today and this event has happened has been to do with the organising and the community building that happened following the incidents at Clapham Common and at Brighton and throughout other loca locations in the UK and, and how we came back and back and back to this issue that Marie has already mentioned that women's health and safety is an industrial issue and, 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 and to go one step further, shame is a health and safety issue and where we are dealing with things that we we don't know the, the right word for or it feels wrong but it doesn't fit into our company's procedures or the culture and the society that we live in we struggle to find the language and to feel confident and and, and amongst the women here today we, we, we we've met on, on multiple occasions we've gathered as friends as sisters and as as trade unionists and and one of the health and safety issues that returns again is that feeling of shame. And we do need to recognize that shame is a health and health and safety issue. I'll give you an example. I had a, a polyp in my uterus removed last year. I had horrifically heavy periods, horrifically heavy periods every month. That absolutely tired, exhausted my body. And I'm a full-time health and safety rep and it took me a good long while to recognize I can't I can't work on those days that that happened. I was absolutely, absolutely exhausted. And when I finally did manage to have that operation during a pandemic, which was an experience, the relief was immediate. Um, we need to talk about having heavy periods. We need to talk about menopause. We need to talk about our uniforms. Um, I've been dealing this week, especially on London Underground, with issues to do with uniform being hard to order on, or on back order or items being ordered and arriving and not fitting. I have not met a single member of London Underground staff, women's staff particularly, who've said my uniform fits me great. Not one. I've been wearing the uniform for 15 years. It has never fitted me well. I was even in a uniform trial in which a tailor came and measured me and the uniform I was delivered did not fit me well. These things might, we might be made to feel like these things are little. They are not. They are, they are death by a thousand paper cuts. They accumulate. It's important we talk about the, the big famous well-known incidents okay we respond to incidents as health and safety reps but we also respond to culture 
and we also respond to society. And we need to recognize that women's health and safety is an industrial issue. So more, men, more, more conversations about menopause, about periods, about pregnancy, about members' rights to say what it is they feel their body can do. Just because a woman is pregnant doesn't mean that she needs to be wrapped in cotton wool. It has to be based on a mutual conversation. And, and, and there will be other panelists and we'll continue this discussion about maternity and pregnancy too. But we do have to, to talk and we, that has to lead to action. We don't want to have a nice chat and feel good. We want to agree actions and do them. We are reps, you are reps, you are activists, you are members, we are members. So let's do this. I'll draw a line there so others can speak, but we'll be touching on, on all of these issues. Thanks a lot, Kat, that was brilliant. Um, next, I'd like to introduce Mel Mul Thanks, Marie. Um, I'm Mel Mullings. I'm an activist, train driver, IRMT rep. Um, I'm the chair for my branch and I'm the assistant secretary of the Black Solidarity Committee. Um, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, I want to focus on how Black women and women of colour navigate work and life. Um, it's very important to know that when Black women go to work, you know, we're not just doing a job, you know, we are doing emotional labor. <laughs> um, Kimberly Crenshaw, who created Intersectionality, explains, intersectionality is an analytical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. Examples of these aspects include gender, caste, sex, race, class, sexuality, religion, disability, physical appearance and height. Intersectionality identifies multiple factors of advantage and disadvantage. These intersecting and overlapping societal identities may both be empowering and oppressive. For example, a black woman might face discrimination from a business that is not distinctly due to her race, nor distinctly due to her gender, but due to a combination of these two factors. Intersectionality broadens the lens of the first and second waves of feminism, which largely focus on experiences of women who were both white and middle class, to include the differences of experiences of women of color and women who are poor, immigrant women and other groups. The theory of intersectionality highlights the multiple avenues through which racial and gender oppression are experienced. So in particular, I wanted to talk about safety for BEM members in the workplace. And sometimes that depends on the following, dodging or escaping the angry black woman trope. Um, it makes us more likely to suppress our emotions and denies the fact that anger is actually a legitimate emotion dodging white feminists, dodging gaslighters, code switching, patriarchy, capitalism, sexism, the policing of our hair, tone policing, you know, for example, why are you shouting? You sound aggressive, Afrophobia, othering, classism. Also, when we find ourselves the first or the only person, violence against BEM women and not getting the same media coverage as white women, you know, examples, the horrific deaths of Sarah Everard versus the coverage that was given or not lack of, I should say, to blessing Olisogan. 
and cultural sensitivity, dodging whiteness in general, um, specifically white guilt, white fragility, white privilege, and the big one, white supremacy. So I'm a train driver and I'll tell you a bit about my experience um, and also just a few initiatives that I'm proud to have implemented. Um, I started London Underground 20 years ago as a CSA. Um, I've been an active member of the RMT from day one and I've never crossed the picket line. Um, I then went part time in 2002 um, to go to uni and I became pregnant um, with my first of three children in 2003. Um, so I went back to full-time work. So I won't go into a long story, but the unions were very instrumental in helping me in my pregnancies and work. Um, and my, one of my first bouts with London Underground and racism in a major way was um, I was awarded a secondment um, in Signals. Um, before, before that, by the way, um, a lady manager was extremely helpful in getting me two informal secondments in the control room. And, but this one, this was an official one. I was racially discriminated against and I took London Underground to court and tribunal and won. And after that, I was silent for a couple of years and I was laying low because of fear of losing my job because I'd stood up for myself. Um, you know, I was stressed out, I felt alone, I was scared. You know, I had, you know, secured, luckily for me, and I say luckily, I had already secured um, the train operation job. So I had decided to skip it, go to Signals and do the secondment and come back. But since what happened, I took up my train operation um, job instead. And so I went straight into it and soon became pregnant again. And then the tongue started wagging, you know, oh, she's off the trains again, you know, and fast forward to coming back. Not too long after that, I became pregnant again. <laughs> so each time a risk assessment was done with my rep, who was a white male, loved to bits, um, he assisted me, but I didn't have a choice of a female rep. And then the rumors started, you know, I was all I was good for was getting pregnant and taking home the money and staying home and never at work. And, you know, I am who I am now, and I bet you they never say that to my face now. But I became a level one industrial rep at my depot after another bout with Elliewell where I'd gone to CDI on a gross misconduct charge. Um, that was dismissed by the way. Um, and I plowed into work um, in the union after that. And it's taken a long time for me to get to the stage where I am now. You know, and I've had long battles with managers and senior managers, but I've made strides. In 2017, I started an initiative at my depot to enable gender balance on the, in the trains manager's position. Um, because at both depots, we have zero women on, in the trains, uh, trains manager's grade. Um, so after I did another initi initiative, um, which basically was thrown back in my face. So we started that initiative to get women involved. And what they did was, oh, we're gonna open it out to everyone. You know, th that's the thing that they do. We open it out to everyone and it failed. Um, so have, we had a recruitment drive um, with interviews, et cetera, and only one woman was selected. Um, the next one, out of 12 positions, only one woman was selected. So that just drove me insane. I went start raving mad, um, started looking up policies and stuff, and I came back and I demanded that all the women from my depot be released to have a discussion as to why there were no women in higher grades well, not just no women completely, that's an exaggeration, but 
you know, there were hardly any women in higher grades and what was stopping them personally. So we had issues come up such, such as unsociable shifts, which, you know, most of us on London Underground, we do shift work. Um, so you're talking about interfering with childcare, the distance to travel sometimes, and basically no desire because it was so male dominated. I was able to implement a no interview development opportunity at our depot and already three women, including myself, have benefited from it and a fourth is about to. It didn't come without a backlash and very hard resistance from all the places, the union. Now imagine we're using union policy to, to go forward and then at the same time, it's being used to, to set us backwards at the same time. But I resisted that and, and won. Um, and I wanted to tell you another um, issue. Um, I've been given permission to um, relay this one. A lady driver had returned from maternity leave and needed a private place to express her milk. So we had a, an unused room. Um, it used to be um, one of the manager's room, but that grade has no longer existed. So it's empty. No one's using it, it's empty. So my proposal was to make it a ladies room. Um, a quiet room was most, which most depots have a quiet room. It's mostly taken over by the males. They go in there and sleep and they do stuff in there. And sometimes we just need a private, a private space to have a cry and reset our minds. And what happened was it was all drivers matter scenario. It was resistance and it was disgracefully so, very openly. Um, so we had an agreement with the manager um, and I had assured the lady driver she would be able to express her milk in private. And this is what happened. She went for the key um, to use the room um, one of, one of, one of, on one occasion. And she was told she was, she was not, to, not to use it. She was, used to, she was to use another room. Um, this is because the manager, he decided that she shouldn't use it. You know, um, I got that quashed. So we wheel and come again and correctly, right? Nope. Another time she took the key and was told to bring it back once she'd opened the door. So give the key, open the door, bring it back, and then you can go and express your milk. Yeah. And she started expressing her milk and in comes another manager and walks in on her expressing her milk. Now the manager did not want to do the right thing. I'm, I'm talking about the senior manager above these managers that were playing, you know, silly, silly games. Um, he wanted to be weak, cower and capitulate to these nasty misogynistic men. And the facility was taken away. The driver, obviously she was, she was traumatized. And, you know, I was disgusted. I had to wait several months you know, in the locker room to have, we were supposed to have um, a plug so that she could use a plug and plug in her, the, her machine to express her milk. Months and months and months, it was gonna cost thousands of pounds just to have a plug. And in the end, we never got that done. Um, we had to wait several months for the ladies locker room to have sanitary machine put in. Um, I've had, luckily I've had LDIs thrown out because, um, train-ups um, have issues with their period, um, you know, which is an underlying condition, by the way. Um, and I've had cases where I've represented women on IVF treatment and, you know, listening to the managers, they don't understand, they don't this, they don't that. And it's like, you don't have to understand, just go with the advice, you listen to what we're saying and then we'll be good. But it, it tends to be difficult because you're always dealing with a male manager. And look, I could go on and on, 
But for this part, I want to ram home how important it is to have female reps representing at all levels, you know, not just in the union, but in companies too. Women, especially BEM women, do not want to just be tolerated. We want to be seen, heard, understood, protected and cared for. The racial economic gap needs to be viewed from the lens of race and gender, taking an intersectional view. We are overrepresented in lower section and lower paid jobs, as seen with the COVID-19 pandemic at the beginning of it, when BEM members were disproportionately being affected. The wage gap is not because of lack of talent, experience or ability. There are systems in place that make it so much harder for BEM members to get ahead financially. Black women file three times more sexual harassment complaints than white women. Those are the ones that we, you know, we, we hear are reported. We don't complain more. It's because we are targeted more. The history of you know, and this disgraceful legacy of enslavement, rape, etc. We are disproportionately and over hypersexualized. We feel isolation. You know, our brothers and sisters on the outside will probably applaud us and support us for getting past the glass ceiling into position sometimes. However, the problem is loneliness of being the only one and sometimes just the first. We need to power more women of color into positions because of this diverse spaces are necessary. There are sectors in industry where black people have not been given opportunities, embraced. This is known as occupational segregation. And yes, I know you thought that segregation is over or it was a thing of the past, but you know, the problem mainly comes from the opposition of the way these problems are addressed in the first place. White people get um, not, sometimes not cognizant of the fact that they often take over the conversation that will directly affect us and leave us out of these solutions. And what ends up happening is this negative push where you go into an environment of backlash. Oh, she got the job because she was a woman. You know, why? You know, we've earned it in the first place. But the response is, um, is to leave us, to deal with these negative feelings, um, you know, of people who are tolerant and non-tolerant. Workplaces include the unions need to look at their hiring practices and work cultures constantly. There are a lot of men still being promoted over highly skilled and capable women, and they need to look at why. Code switching is very dangerous one because it leaves black women emotionally vulnerable in what can seem as unsafe spaces. Code switching is basically having to adjust your words in order to fit into white spaces for the fear of not being understood. Knowing that our voice, you know, it will not be amplified or that we will be shut down or dismissed. This is also perpetuated by patriarchy, you know, men trying to assert their dominance over us for whatever reason. You know, the whole I don't see color mentality, again, is a dangerous one because it denies a person's existence and their lived experience of black women and the hard struggle we, we navigate daily. And this is not just in our workplace, our unions, you're talking about children's services. After some, someone has a domestic violence issue, you know, when they come in, they're quite heavy handed. Um, police who tend to resource into cases where the victim is white while dismissing black families and their pain. You know, racism and mental health intersect. Often it's ignored by many institutions and healthcare services and work and in the workplace. 
in a world where your existence and your identity has been used to cause you harm, expecting staff to just show up to work with no systems or resources in place isn't acceptable. Having a colorblind approach for racial trauma isn't adequate enough to support staff who have these experiences and are exposed to racial trauma daily. You're talking about in the media, workplace, you know, just traveling. In our environment, if our environments are hostile, you know, and if they are hostile to us, asking for parity and inclusion, etc., we need to look at further strategies to get them to do their part. So many things stop us from feeling safe or actually being safe. Racism, PTSD, and increased anxiety are linked. We cannot continue to ignore the suffering of staff and racial trauma because we don't have, want to have difficult conversations. It's time for us to speak up. We don't need to suffer in silence and the right policy and resources. We can stop the work cultures where people are silent because they're scared they will lose their job if they speak up because their services are not there to support us. So following the Tony Sewell report, the police crime sentencing and courts bill, the Kilda Bill protests, which, have, which I've joined and spoken in at recent, recently and will be going to on the 1st of May, I hope you'll join me. Um, you know, they make us weigh in heavily on reaction politics. And I'm sorry, but with all the things that people go through daily, is it safe for us to challenge all of this on our own? In conclusion, I would like to say some words for our migrant workers. You know, people who are expected to work for a set amount of hours per week for minimal pay and dreadful conditions, you know, to make ends meet while they're either wait, you know, they're studying or they're waiting for their citizenship. You know, just let you know we see you. Um, in the Black Solidarity Committee, you know, we have a, a campaign um, that I want to tell you about, but I wanted to first, you know, say the campaign for justice for Belly Majinga still must continue and for so many others. You know, women around the world who keep the freedom fight, I salute you. Where you work, please make sure that you're amplifying the voices of black women. You know, are you amplifying the voices that promote safety and equality? You know, that's what we claim we're seeking. You know, are you walking into diverse spaces that are accessible to all? You know, and if not, what are you doing about it? When a woman speaks, especially black women, let her speak. Don't micromanage us, don't control us, tame us, muzzle us. You know, ladies, please set those boundaries. We are integral to this fight. We keep it going. So by the time a black woman is ready to complain about all that's happened to her, it's already too late. You know, we must try to speak our truth and we want to speak our truth, but don't shut us down. Um, so the Black Solidarity Committee, we've it started opening up conversations about discussions about a campaign called One Day Without Black Workers and Their Allies. And it's just one day at the moment. We're still talking. And it was how would the exploitative rest of the world manage? Um, and the term black for you know, to explain means those people discrim being discriminated against. It's a, it's a political term, you know, Africans, Asians, Eastern European and other minority in the UK, but who are part of the global majority. What if we all stop working for one day? So again, I want to work in solidarity with my sisters. Um, we've had long and hard conversations. It's been a journey and I really want to, to thank 
um, the women that are on this panel today and a lot of other women in our branches for coming together and showing solidarity. So again, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Mel. That was absolutely brilliant as always, fantastic. Um, next, I think I'd like to bring in now Shelley. Shelley, with TUC. Uh, are you good to go now, Shelley? I am, thank you, Marie. And thanks to Kat for inviting me and really powerful contributions from you and Mel. Thank you so much for those. It's with a heavy heart that we come together on this day every year, really, for International Workers Memorial Day. But we absolutely must come together, of course, in memory and in anger and in struggle for safer work and for justice for those who've lost their lives for work-related causes. The official health and safety executive figures show that 111 people died from fatal injuries at work this year, and 11 of them worked in transport. But we know the real number is far higher than that. An estimated 50,000 people in Britain lose their life to work-related illness or injury every year, and many more worldwide because this is of course an international day. And as we meet now, thousands of others across the globe are meeting to remember people who've died and talk about the fight for safer work. And I'm really glad this event is putting a spotlight on women's health and safety because while the workers who lose their lives to work and are commemorated today on Workers' Memorial Day are more often men, there are so many issues that affect women workers that are often ignored whether it be occupational risk of breast cancer, PPE designed for men's bodies, as Kat spoke about with uniforms, the menopause at work, or the hugely gendered effect of stress, or of course, the one almost all of us have experienced, sexual harassment in the workplace, whether it's from management or our colleagues or customers or clients, these concerns have to be taken on more by our movement. And in my opinion, a key part of that must mean recruiting and training more women to become health and safety reps and more women of colour. Our reps base, safety reps that is, is still overwhelmingly white men over the age of 40, most of whom are excellent comrades, of course, interested in women's health and safety, but they don't necessarily have that experience that you sisters are speaking with to understand it or to be able to speak to other sisters about it. I'm pleased to say that we have seen a rise this year in the number of women taking on the safety rep role and will continue trying to raise that number. This year at the TUC, I'm reconvening the GOSH group looking at gender and occupational safety in health. It hasn't met for a few years, but it's about time that it did. And it will be looking at all those issues that I mentioned before. I know this year on Workers Memorial Day, many of us are also thinking about those whose lives have been cut short to COVID, who were likely exposed to the virus in their place of work like Donna Coleman, whose death was covered in the news yesterday. She caught COVID after an outbreak at Burnley College, despite the union ringing the alarm to management and the health and safety executive. Steps were not taken to keep people safe and it cost Donna her life. Or like Ranjith Chandrapala, a London bus driver, 
who died from COVID while bus workers in their unions made repeated demands for further steps to keep them safe. I joined his daughter this morning alongside other bereaved families as we came together to demand an inquiry. Also pointing out how it's black workers more often put at risk. Make no mistake, without our unions, those death tolls would be far higher. We know that workplaces with recognised unions and particularly with safety reps have fewer rates of injury, fewer illnesses and fewer deaths. It's unions that make work safe because all too often bosses would rather put business interests ahead of health and safety. But there are others that we mustn't let off the hook as well, like who I mentioned just now, the absent regulator, the HSE, that's seen fewer enforcement notices dished out in the year of a pandemic than in normal years, that's failed to prosecute a single employer over COVID safety failings, despite the fact that 15,000 people of working age have died from this virus, many of whom likely exposed to it in their place of work, and it's failed to classify COVID as a serious workplace risk. And of course, in terms of not letting people off the hook, this government, 10 years ago, the Tories launched a red tape challenge, they called it, to strip back health and safety legislation. Now they're led by a man who allegedly said, let the bodies pile high. We'll take a look around, Boris. They were already piling high. 50,000 people a year in Britain dying from work. That's before you think about how many more have died because of COVID because you refuse to offer sick pay, you failed to provide the right PPE, you sent shielding workers back too soon. I wanna salute the brave workers who come together to take action in spite of all of this, like the 1400 PCS members at the DVLA who are out again next week in a dispute over COVID safety following the death of one of their colleagues. And the reps who I've met there and heard speak are young women trade unionists leading their colleagues out on strike. You know, COVID isn't a gendered safety issue, but the fact that women are more often in caring roles and on the front line makes it one. It makes it one of many that we need to work together across our unions to bring attention to and take action over. So thank you, Kat, for inviting me to be part of this conversation tonight. Solidarity, and I look forward to working with you all. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Shelley. That was amazing as well. Um, right, comments coming through a bit thicker and faster now. Um, next, I'd like to bring in our Linda, Linda Martin from London Underground. Take it away, Linda. Unmute yourself, Linda. Linda, you're still on. That's it. Yeah, I'm unmuted yeah, now. Yeah. Hi, um, I've worked on the underground for 22 years, starting as a guard. And I've really, after listening to the other girls speak, I just really want to sort of touch on the things that subtly you're undermined from the word go when you start working in a male dominated environment, I feel. Um, I came on here when I was in my early 40s. I allowed my children to get a little bit older because I was worried about childcare, being a single mother and a survivor of domestic violence. Um, and I felt 
quite the odd one out. I turned up in a class where I was the only woman to train to be a guard. I felt like I had to do better than the men because I was in the spotlight more because I was different. Um, and uh, it sort of carried on like that, which is quite amazing when you think that Hannah Dads, who was the first woman driver on the, on the underground on the district line, was in 1978. And I started 20 years later and I still looked at it as a novelty. Oh, there's a woman working here. And um, just the subtle, subtle undermining of things of, I think when the underground started, the world was a different place. And it just seemed that it was designed, the whole of the underground was designed that only men were going to work there. And they didn't seem to update any of their rules or design anything into their rules and regulations that made work safer, safer for everybody, not just for women. Because I always feel if you make things safer for women and ethnic minorities, you're making it safer for everybody. You're picking up on issues that are missed by men, although it affects them. And um, I became a rep when I first went over onto the Piccadilly line after, after I was a guard and then a driver. And um, the first thing that I had to help with was a case of a male driver stalking a female driver. And it went to uh, an official CDI. But when I was investigating him, it worked out he'd worked on the underground for over 20 years. And he'd been doing it all this time, various women in different roles, station assistants, cleaners. And every time when, when the women complained about him, he was all he was sorted out unofficially. It was all it never went on his record that he'd been harassing women. And yet whenever I asked anybody, oh, do you know about so and so? Oh God, not him. Is he at it again? So it was all nobody was caring about the women. They were more concerned in keeping his career on track than ever helping any of the women that he'd harassed. In fact, in one case, a woman was asked to change lines. She had to change, not him. So then when I took it to court, it all became a little bit tense in the depot because he was Asian and I was accused of being racist because it was a white woman that he was harassing. And it went to CDI and the outcome of it was, I don't know if rules and regulations have changed now, but at that time, the only way they could force him to go on a course about counselling and his attitudes to women was if, was if they uh, he either had to go, have the sack or go on one of these courses. And he decided that he hadn't done anything wrong. So therefore, he took the other option of, of being sacked. And it went to the tribunal, but he didn't win. But I then had to go back to the depot and suffer all the resentment of a lot of the Asian males thinking that I was a racist. And it took me a long time to work through that. But I mean, I was only there to help women. And um, I say that that sort of didn't go down too well. Um, I carried on there and took up an, a role as an instructor operator and um, was told I only got it because I was a woman, which is not what I don't want to be a token woman doing a job. I want to be a woman doing a job because I'm good at it. So I had to put up with prove myself with that. And then after that happened, I also um, became a stock instructor which is as a driver, I'm sure Melissa knows, it's like when the train goes wrong, how to make it go when there's a fault. Again, first woman in that role, and I felt as there were more women, women coming through into the system, that I had a different approach on it than the men that were taking it. So I was quite successful as that, and I quite enjoyed that, that option. 
And then I decided to put him to be a test train operator, um, which works on every line and every stop. Um, I was the first ever woman that had put in for it. And on my first interview, the first attempt I tried for it, I was told, oh, there's two men here. There were 16 in the section. There's two men here that won't work with you because you're a woman. So I never got the job. I'm not saying it was because of that. And then it came out again. I reapplied and this time I got the job. And it was absolutely awful because there was 16 men in this section who didn't know how to treat a, a woman worker doing the same job as them. I was subtly made to feel that what I was, I wasn't quite as important as them because they were men and they knew what they were doing. And um, the training I got was abysmal. And I became the rep when the previous, when the guy retired. And um, I just felt not as important. They made me feel that the things that I was asking about weren't important. The example, I was the first ever woman that worked in that engineering section. There was no uniform for me. Everything was men's. And I'm quite short. I'm only four foot eleven. So everything they, I could order out the book, even the smallest size, wasn't any good for me. So I did my own protest, and for four years until they could supply me with adequate uniform, I came in in using the driver driver's shirts and jeans and my Dr. Martin issue shoes from when I was a driver. And they kept saying, "This is the wrong uniform. You're meant to wear deco uniform." And my argument was, "You supply it to me." And I'll wear it. And they said, we will. will. I said, yes, but it's all too big. It's a tripping hazard for me. It's a health and safety hazard, hazard to wear clothes that are the wrong size. So it was quite a baptism of fire going over there. And um, I do quite enjoy my job now, but I've been there 12 years now. And I feel like I've earned my spurs. But why should I have had to? But blokes come into the section and they weren't um, expected to prove themselves before they turned up because they'd already proved themselves when they've got there. But some of the issues that I have had problems with when I was previously a driver was also the fact that um, the taxi cabs that we get after after work were all sort of the pickup points were all in quite dangerous places. And on the Piccadilly line, I did actually argue to get them changed so that the taxis went down to the depot gates rather than standing at the top of roads outside stations on your own when the stations are locked trying to wait for a cab when people come up and talk to you but the latest thing that's happened to me this is the last thing I'm quite quick I've got a lot to add um I was working at Barking in the middle of the night because we do testing when the trains aren't running an operational service and um Barking is a little bit dodgy and I don't know the area there's not there's no real lot of parking in the crew depot so I had to park out on the road and um I had to walk down and get into the station. And the last trains were just going through. It was about sort of one o'clock-ish. And as I got onto the station, there was this guy waiting for a train, I presume, going to Upminster. And um, he kept trying to hold my hand. And he just wouldn't leave me alone. And I was so grateful in the end when the, the – because my other – the driver I was working with had gone down the side and bought the train out. I was so relieved it come in the platform and I got on it. And he said to me, are you all right? I went, oh, that bloke. Anyway, when I had a level one meeting with my manager, I mentioned this to him. I said, you know, like this bloke accosted me, wouldn't me, me, leave me alone. And I think he thought he was being funny, flippant. And he said, you should be so lucky. 
And I then sort of had to remind him that he's got the underground have got a duty of care for me. They should make sure that I'm safe. I never chose to be at Barking at half past one in the morning. They put me in that position. But sometimes I feel that you have to offer them answers. So what we did after that was I asked unofficially with the guys that I work with, will you meet me? In you know, like we we find where to meet a safer place. And we don't go to Barking now, we go to Upney, which is quieter and a bit more quiet and domestic. And we we all meet in a certain place and, and go together. So I feel like sometimes you have to help them out by offering a solution if you can. But one of the things I often say to these guys is, would you like it if that was your wife or your daughter being spoken to like that? And then it makes, sometimes I do think it's done not out of badness, but just like misunderstanding and ignorance as to how they should really treat people in the workplace. Um, That's all I've got to say, really. And um, thanks for letting me uh, join in. Thank you. That was fantastic, Linda. I'm like hearing that experience going back for so long from someone who was and still is actually a pioneer doing the job that you're doing. That that's invaluable and it's something that we all need to learn from. It's fantastic. Love it. Next, I'd like to introduce our Janine, Janine Booth. Um, if you're ready to go, Janine, take it away. Thank you very much. And um, what a set of brilliant speeches to, to, to follow. Those were great. Um, OK, so my name is Janine Booth. I have uh, worked on London Underground for nearly 25 years. And for most of that time, I've been a, a rep of some description or another. And I have to say that that's been a quarter of a century of experiencing and witnessing women's health and safety issues, including menstrual issues, menopause, pregnancy, breast cancer, assault, harassment and more. So where I work now, or did before it was suspended due to the pandemic, is on the night tube. And night tube, unfortunately, on the night tube, sexual harassment and assault is, I was going to say a nightly occurrence. It's probably an hourly occurrence. Um, it would be more unusual to have a shift where I didn't have to help a woman who was in tears, um, wanting to use the phone to call a friend, uh, wanting me to intervene to protect her from a bloke who was harassing her, etc. And actually, there, there's one thing I realised a couple of months into Night Tube that, that, that shocked even me, is that there are actually men who go out on Night Tube deliberately looking for women to assault, in particular finding women passed out drunk on a train, sitting next to them and starting to grope them, pretending that, you know, she's his girlfriend or something. It's, uh, it, it really is revolting. And we also, we did a survey of our members, RMC members who work on stations on, on night tube. And a huge number of them had been um, assaulted either physically or sexually or had been verbally harassed. A significant number of men had been in all of those categories and every single woman, every single woman who replied to that survey had been uh, verbally abused, sexually harassed or phys physically assaulted. You won't find that in the records, though, because half of them aren't reported. And the reason they're not reported is because there is this culture um, that getting harassed is just part of the job. Um, if you don't want to be harassed at work, then you shouldn't be doing a job like this, really, should you? And that kind of attitude really uh, does stink and it's something we need to challenge. And I think one of the things that's really important is um, not to just go to the management and say, we want you to do something. This situation is terrible. 
we need really precise, concrete demands that they have to say yes or no to. The, um, the, the, the great anti-slavery campaign of Frederick Douglass um, famously said, um, power concedes nothing without a demand. And so that's why I'm really pleased that, the, that our, our union has written to London Underground Management setting out a series of things that we want done, and that we want done to make women safer at work. Um, it's a whole list of things. I'm not going to list all of those things, but an example, for example, an example would be we want safe places uh, to wait for staff taxis at home, at, at work, and we want those taxis to take us to our front doors. So we're not uh, walking across um, London or wherever else we live um, in the middle of the night. And another one of our, there is one of the demands that I do want to say a, a little bit extra about, which is the demand that the company adopt RMT's model policy on domestic violence. Now, you can read that model policy on the RMT London Calling website, but it includes things such as um, no disciplinary action to be taken um, under attendance or lateness policies against victims of domestic violence. It includes things like time off for legal housing and, and other um, appointments relevant to escaping domestic violence. It includes protection from the abuser pursuing the victim at work. Now, we launched this in 2013 at RMT Women's Conference. It was an initiative of the Women's Committee. Although this, I, I must say, this domestic violence policy covers everybody, including male victims of domestic violence. And when we launched it in 2013, we proposed it to London Underground. And London Underground management refused to adopt it or even discuss adopting it or discuss adopting any policy on domestic violence because, and I quote, it's not our business, it's a private issue. Okay, now that is precisely the attitude that has kept domestic violence going for so long. It took a lot of campaigning by feminists and others to tackle the habit of the police of turning up to a ruckus at home and walking away saying it's just a domestic, leaving the woman to be beaten up. They've had to, they've had to step up. They've had to start behaving better than that. And it's time our management did as well. So we're going back to them with that policy and insisting um, that they, they leave that attitude in the cave where it belongs um, and, and take up this policy. And I think it is important that we think about inappropriate responses to women speaking out about abuse and, and violence. So quite a common one, and a woman speaks out about domestic violence that happened maybe in the past, and maybe sometime in the past, is, well, why didn't she leave him? And why didn't she report it at the time? And there are lots of good reasons why she didn't leave him, um, or why she didn't report at the time. It might be fear, might be concern for the children. It might be her financial dependence on him. It might be a hope that her abuser will change because he said he's sorry and he says he's going to change. Um, so we mustn't allow doubt to be cast on women who say they were abused in the past just because they didn't report it at the time. A little bit more on unhelpful responses, I think. Um, relying on the police would, be, um, would definitely be an unhelpful response. We had an RMT women's meeting online uh, a few weeks ago and lots of women, we all talked to each other um, about experiences of abuse and harassment. And lots of women had uh, it, their stories included involving the police and not a single one of them, not a single one had a positive report of their engagement with the police. 
all their engagement with the police have been traumatizing, inadequate, um, etc. Essentially, they're part of the problem. And I think also we can be appalled, as uh, Marie mentioned in her opening comments, we can be appalled by the lenient sentences that are given to some men who attack women, and in particular by the sexist justifications often given for those by the judges. We can be appalled by that without having to see stiffer sentences um, as the answer to the problem of violence against women. Um, there's also, I'm, I'm getting kind of, I suppose, increasingly peeved, I suppose, by um, men who kind of, uh, kind of say, well, if I saw a woman, harass a man harassing a woman, I'll beat him up, right? As though that kind of uh, macho aggressive response is, is, a, is a solution to the problem. Um, it's not because it's, it's based on, well, partly because it just keeps going, the, the, the culture of partly because it, it's based on this narrative that there are a small number of monstrous individual men who attack women and ignores the, the wider context of endemic everyday sexism. Because the fact is, I mean, it is true that acts of extreme violence are carried out by only a small minority of men, that's true. But firstly, it's still too many. And secondly, it's underpinned by structures and attitudes in society that keep women as second-class citizens, that define women as the property of men, and that stereotype women as passive and men as dominant and aggressive. Stereotypes that harm, I should add, both men and women. Um, so I think it's important to assert that sexism that women's health and safety are structural social issues. They are class issues. I wanted also to mention women's mental health, um, which is quite obviously a health and safety issue, because it's got health in the name. Um, women's mental health is impacted by the experience of sexism and abuse. Um, and then, just to add insult to injury, is often used against women who speak out. So, Part of the problem here, I think, is that the mainstream narrative of mental ill health uh, portrays it as people having problems in their head uh, that need fixing through treatment and or greater resilience. Um, but actually, mental ill health is rooted in trauma and distress, and it needs to be addressed as such rather than pathologized. So if a woman is upset, uh, even distraught or unwell because she's been harassed or assaulted, or because of years of their drip, drip, drip of everyday sexism or racism or a combination of them both, then the problem is not with her being upset or unwell. The problem is what's been done to her that's made her upset and unwell. It's not her that's sick, it's a society that allows that to happen to her that is sick. And then too often when women do speak out about their experience of abuse, they're called hysterical, um, or their accounts are doubted, or diagnoses of mental ill health are cited as evidence that they are lying or reasons to not believe them. Now, I said near the start of my comments that it's important to make demands on employers. I want to add to that that women, uh, women workers are also demanding that our trade unions step up. Sadly, trade unions are not immune from sexism and bullying. So we have to tackle them within our own ranks. It's important that trade unionists don't dis dismiss women complaining about sexism as being humorless moaners. 
And it's important that we don't assume that just because a man gives barnstorming speeches about his commitment to equality, that he cannot be a sexist. Trade union strength lies in the unity and diversity of its membership. We call each other brothers and sisters. Women demanding equality and respect is not divisive. It's unifying. It's sexism that is divisive. Anyway, Marie, when she introduced me right at the beginning, mentioned that I was a poet. So I thought, well, I'd better end on a poem then. Um, so I'm going to um, I'm going to leave you with this poem about, well, it'll become clear what it's about as, as, as I do it. Okay, it's called Locked Up and Down. If you're locked up with books or with someone who cooks better than you, then you'll probably get through. If you're locked down with a garden, then that's not so hard. And with a nice glass of wine, you'll probably be fine. If you're locked down with games and with people who play them and plenty of space, you can probably face it. If you're locked down with lists of tasks that you missed when you went out all day, then you might be okay. And if you're locked down without, lock, without loss of pay instead of with nout, then that's one less thing to worry about. But if you're locked down with damp and it's cold and it's cramped and you're breathing in spores, then it's not good indoors. If you're locked down with a primitive heater and not enough coins to keep feeding the meter and a smell that you hate, then that isn't so great. If your bubble is trouble and your mum's prone to falls, if your lockdown companion is climbing the walls, if he's working from home so you don't get your respite or he's out of his job and his head's getting desperate, if you're locked down with a mental abuser, independence refuser, control over user, who's soaked in aggression and close supervision, who teaches you lessons with forensic precision, If you're locked down with a partner come master, with nowhere to go to escape from the bastard, you're locked up and locked down in exactly the place, the home of your own, where you're supposed to be safe. Remember the people, most of them women, whose lives were diminished or brought to an end before lockdown was finished. Thanks very much. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Janine. Um, absolutely storming contributions there from everybody uh, now I do have a comments window open uh, however the comments are disappearing before I can uh, get to them I'm just gonna share my screen if I can Will just be panel. No, can't do it. Okay, one one that did one that did actually come up, and that was about. Oh, right, lost my lost my question now. What I could do, Marie, is yeah. the uh, what we are going to ask branches to do. So for those of you watching who are from London Transport branches, that we would encourage anyone. What we have decided uh, that we would like to encourage uh, the region and the branches to do, and we've begun that, is to start a women's working class history library, a, a small collection of books for our members to use. So, so what I've done is I've asked every panelist uh, to recommend a book about a working class woman. 
And uh, the first few of them have already arrived and I shall be ordering more. And then I'm going to be writing to every branch in the region, so that's at least 14, and asking them to contribute one book about a working class woman. Uh, and, and I think that that is something positive and concrete for, for all members for, 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 to, to come and use. We know we've learned from engineering branch, by the way, that they have a small library. And so I will be writing to all branch secretaries and I hope that you're willing to spend probably around £10. I want you to buy that book and to send it to me. But I will uh, I'll be in contact with you. And of course, I would encourage all members to go to their branches with motions uh, to, to look and address some of these issues and to have these conversations. And also as a tier two rep uh, and as the women on this panel here, we are, we are all, uh, we're all reps and we'd love to chat to you or, or put you in touch with another rep you think might be helpful this is about community and and, and, and we want to build it creatively uh, and with no apology so a small little library i think is a good place to start and one book per branch and i think is a fair ask uh, thanks a lot cap now i have found one of the things that i did want to go back to and that was a terrific comment from ebony kingston and that was about having those uncomfortable conversations, um, particularly touching on white feminism, touching on intersectionality, about we need to sit down, shut up, and listen to what black women are saying. Um, so in the light of that, I'd like to bring in Mel to maybe give us some like thoughts on that. Um, I saw... I think you've probably seen um, Michelle Williams did, um, I think it was a Golden Globe speech and Joaquin Phoenix did one as well um, about um, listening to um, black people and black women, especially um, because of the fact that there's industries where um, even though there's still um, sexism and there's still patriarchy, white women have been able to excel. Um, yet when you compare it to what um, black women have been able to get and they're just as talented, it's, there's a big disparity. And Viola Davis um, did a campaign where she was saying, pay me what I am worth. And I think it's very powerful because of the fact that she's an amazing actress. She's hands down one of the best actresses I've ever seen. And she should be, and she said it, I should be, I should have far surpassed where Meryl Streep is. I should have far surpassed, you know, a lot of names she's calling. And it's only now, later in her career, when we've had um, black women such as Sonda Rhimes come into the fore and place her in um, leading roles where she can now show um, how amazing she is and she's been able to get Oscar nominations for the help. And I believe she got an Oscar nomination for Fences as well, that people are now starting to catch up. So what happens with um, sometimes white feminism is because it's a political movement in the beginning, you know, equal rights, equal pay, um, the racial element that black women face is not included in it and it can be exclusionary. And then therefore, we get left behind on, on the side of it. So having these conversations now and having 
Um, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable because of the fact that some people don't understand their privilege. Um, and then when somebody comes in saying to you, actually, my experience is worse than yours, and you're thinking, well, you know, I also get um, discriminated against, and it's, it's not a competition. It's about listening to each other and understanding the fact that if I say that I'm going through something, I'm basically crying for help. It's a cry for help. You know, once I open my mouth and speak, it is a cry for help. It's not a competition. And I think we're having those conversations now. And having those conversations is bringing us closer and closer together in our struggle. And it's, it's bringing about a lot more solidarity and we can move so much further forward by, you know, listening to each other and moving together. You know, we've got to get our house um, sorted first before we go out. So our women have to come together first before we can chastise the men, even though the men really do need a spanking, but you know, so thank you. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Mel. That's brilliant. I've heard it called even oppression Olympics. Like, you know, you think you've got it bad, uh, and very opposite of intersectionality. I've got it worse than you because of this. You've got it worse than me because of that. Um, I, I want to. I know Kat had some thoughts as well about white feminism and uncomfortable conversations. So I'd like next, if it's okay with the rest of the panel, to bring in Kat. Yeah, I mean, and again, these are the conversations, the conversations we're having here, we're not performing them, these are conversations that we've, we have as friends and we have in our branches and we have in our Zoom meetings and we jump in on our friends' branches, so it's the one advantage uh, at the moment of that is being able to go and support sisters across, across, across the network, I, and, and you know what it makes a difference, it's like I know I see Mel jump in the room at Neesden branch, at my branch the other week, and I thought, okay, she's got my back. You know, and, and and I did the same to her. Uh, she is she is um, a branch chair for 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 the Bakerloo branch, and we do not have we have hardly any women chairs. Marie Harrington, right there. We have hardly any women branch secretaries. She is one of them, Piccadilly and District West. But in regards to uncomfortable conversations, like I'm speaking to people like me, like middle class white women, uh, and we can have a conversation about working class. Uh, I exchange my labour for a wage and working class, but I'm culturally middle class. And, and I've got to call myself on that. I didn't have all the typical experiences. I didn't complete, I didn't successfully complete, complete my university education. All right. But other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm your stereotype. And I need, I, I need to know, and I talked a bit earlier about shame as a health and safety issue, right? Shame is also an obstruction. Now, if my embarrassment and me feeling awful and difficult, and I have anxiety, that comes easily, right? And if I've got all of that, it is, uh, there is an element of that I have to call myself on, and I've got to deal with it. There is, and as Janine said, things done to you are one thing, right? But if I am, if I am wanting somebody to make me feel better for being a knob, that's the wrong thing. That's the wrong thing. But I also do want to feel like my sisters are going to still have my back when I, when I screw up. And I will. Uh, and screwing up is not the end of the world when it's in a culture. Right? I'm a health and safety rep, so, you know, maybe I should never say that sentence again. Right. But being able to be a mess in a safe space. That's what being brave is. Being brave isn't being strong. Being brave is being able to say, I'm a knob. Have you got my back? Okay, let's do this, right? 
and just get over yourself. And um, but also to educate and inform. And, and and I do weigh too heavily on people who are experts in areas. I weigh too heavily on Mel. Uh, in that regard, I have a responsibility, and I, I suspect the book that she chose could be could be uh, could be the path to that. Um, Ida B. Wells' autobiography, and uh, I think I'd, I'd love uh, Emma Goldman's autobiography to get in there too. You know, I've got a I've got to pull my finger out my arse and read some books, uh, and I need to feel safe. I need to feel safe to mess up, and I need to care about not messing up. Um, and it all feels awkward and horrible and, and I get the sweats sometimes and then I'm fine and I feel fine and then I feel awful again and I don't know if I'll ever get over myself, right? All of these things are okay. We can get over ourselves, we can educate ourselves and we can give a shit. Thanks, Kat. Brilliant. Um, has anyone else on the panel would like to like speak at all on that subject, particularly about the um, white feminism, uh, about the intersectionality, uh, how things sort of interact with each other. But we've all got food for thought to take away. But then to sort of say was like that from Janine's contribution, it was like it is really important that we all take away from this meeting ideas about the solid actions that we take. Um, that it's not only about these are the awful things that happen that happen every day and that we are up against, but that we can give each other the tools and the support to go back to our workplaces, go back to our employers, go back to wider society and like have that have each other's backs, as Kat said, have each other's backs, but have those tools, have those ideas to combat it. Um wanted to go back to like some that Linda brought up and that was like sexual harassment when also Janine obviously about the horrendous sexual harassment on Nightube. Um now I've been in the workplace since the um well since the early eighties. Um we didn't have a name for sexual harassment then. There wasn't a word for it. Um everybody knew which men you wouldn't get in the lift with on your own or be in a cupboard when he was in the vicinity or be near a corner with but we didn't have a word for it and we'd tell our friends and family or whatever what had happened and it was like oh yeah i've heard about him you've just got to stay away from him and that was the only solution until until there was a word for it we didn't have the weapons against it either it had to be sort of defined. And when that phrase, that sexual harassment was murdered, you were like, yeah, that's it. That's what's been happening. That's that thing. Because up to then, it was kind of nebulous if you were trying to describe it. That thing that you get, that something's not right. He's kept his hand on my shoulder a little bit too long, but just short of the point where I'd say, what the hell are you doing? Um, so I just, like... Regarding sexual harassment and bearing in mind kind of solid actions to take away, I, I'd like to take some of the panel's thoughts about that. And do you mind, Linda, if I bring you back to sort of think about that? No, well, um, I know the case that I was involved with, it, it was 
probably about 2003, 2004, and men were, they were all boys together. And I just sort of think a lot of them didn't think what this bloke was doing was, was, was anything wrong. And it wasn't until, I suppose, people realised that women didn't think it a compliment that some bloke decided that he wanted to um, be in love with you and you should enjoy it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I say I did get a lot, a lot of flack for it afterwards. I think because the guy chose to leave or get the sack rather than go on a course because he didn't think anything that he was doing was wrong. And I, and I think I say, a lot of his colleagues at my workplace also felt that. But I don't know. I think attitudes have slightly changed now, a little bit. I, I suppose because there's more women coming in the workplace and more women getting into places of power. You see people on the TV and the news talking about things like this that's happening. And I do think maybe older guys probably are still set in their ways. But I think like a lot of people coming onto the job now have got a different attitude towards women than maybe older guys have got. I don't know. Um, I say I, I, I feel London Underground didn't really have the tools to address it because they were still pandering to the fact that the majority of people on the underground were men at that time. So I suppose, because it was such a small problem, they didn't think it was worth bothering about. Thanks, but. thanks, Linda. But it's really, really good to have your experience and insights on this panel. It absolutely is. Um, anyone else on the panel? Want, is that Mel? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to, I'm desperate to ask Linda this question. <laughs> Linda, I wanted to know, um, do you think your environment that you've, you've had to work in would have been improved if there were more women there in the first place? Or, you know, since you've come along, just, you know, whether it be a balance or just more of them? I think in the job I've got now, I was the first woman to go into it. And we've got another girl that's just started after 12 years. There's another girl in the section. And she's had a lot easier ride than me, I think, because I've made it. I know this sounds, oh, I don't know, it sounds awful, I suppose, in a way. Some of the guys thought I was going to come in the section and play the woman card, so they call it. And I didn't do that. I just tried to get on and do the job. And... But like I say, I had all this prejudice against me and everybody I work with, I had people say to me, oh, you're not that bad, as if I was some sort of trouble. But I feel the girl who's come into the section now, because they sort of realise that women are people as well and they just want to come to do their job and go home like everybody else, I do feel it's made it a bit easier for her to actually fit in. Because I say there's... I've done, I've done a lot of the hard work for her, I suppose. That sounds big-edged, but I feel like I've done a bit of the work for her to make people realise that women are just people. We're different, but we're people. You definitely have. You're a pioneer like, <laughs> in all sorts of ways. Um, next, I'd like to bring in Janine. Yeah, just a yeah. couple of comments on, 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 on the... 
what's been said so far. I mean, on the issue of intersectionality, on certainly on race, I'd endorse what has been said, and I'd just just add quickly that where uh, on the occasions that I've represented uh, Black and Asian, in particular women um, at work who've been sexually harassed, um, race has definitely been an issue. Um, whether directly in the sense of having racist comments made or more, you know, uh, kind of sexual harassment that takes advantage of or bases itself on stereotypes of what Asian women are like and that kind of stuff. So definitely an issue. There's other forms of intersectionality as well. So just to tell you a little story on the night tube thing, there was a man harassing a woman on my station and he, he, he wouldn't stop. He wouldn't stop. And in the end, I just kind of stepped in between them and went like that and just said, leave her alone. And he said, what are you, some kind of fucking lesbian? Now, obviously, we all think of witty retorts after the event, and I kind of wish I'd said no, but my ex-girlfriend is, and see whether that had confused him. Um, but it just shows that, you know, you stick up yourself, you're a lesbian. It shows an intersection there with homophobia as well. I should add on that little story, by the way, that I never reported that at work. And the reason I didn't report it was I thought that I would get in trouble for having stepped in between them. That management would say, that's not in your job description. You put yourself in danger, etc." And the reason I thought that is because there's examples of that happening to our members, of them intervening to prevent assaults and then them being the ones who are in trouble. Um, also, the intersection with the um, oppression of disabled women. Disabled women, believe it or not, are twice as likely to be victims of domestic abuse than non-disabled women. So latest statistic on this, um, from April 2019 to March 2020, 17.5% of disabled women were victims of domestic abuse, which I think is roughly one in six, isn't it? One in six, just during that one year, um, compared with 6.7% of non uh, of non-disabled women. So, yeah, that was the thought I wanted to add on that. Fantastic. Thanks, Janine. Um, I've got a comment in the... Unfortunately, the comments are disappearing from me really quickly. So I only just got to see it. And that was from Jane Strange, said that the prospect of being falsely accused is such a terrifying thought for them that uh, sometimes that's the way they react, the way they do. I'm sorry I can't see the full comments and like read it out properly. So I hope I'm not misrepresenting what, what you're actually saying there. Um, I'd want to throw that out to the panel. Um, so the, the prospect of being falsely accused like like by a men. Um, what 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 are our what are our thoughts on that? Could I jump in um, just to start this one off? I mean, essentially, I think there's a, there's a lot of myth busting that we need to do as we, we need to do with health and safety and with women's issues. And we need to recognise, uh, I think what Jane uh, uh, Jane is recognising as a real issue is, is how men react. Now, uh, now, if I'm getting that wrong, Jane, I apologise, but what I'm taking from that is how men react. And, and that they react, and that they react with the, I've been falsely accused. Um, and all, all I would encourage anybody that is thinking, well, actually, I think that, but I don't really want to say it because they will have a go at me. Okay, just quietly take that away and go look up some rape statistics. Go look up how our uh, judicial system treats sexual assault and go and have a look at the prosecutions and then go and have a fucking cry. 
Um, I'm sorry, I've got a bit sweary and it's probably a bit early, so I apologise. Um, but I think that we absolutely have to acknowledge that that happens, but that but that it happens is a weird cultural event because a bunch of people haven't informed themselves. Um, and maybe that, maybe I need to approach that with more compassion um, as well. I, I'm happy to call myself on that, maybe. And, and I do think what the points that Linda was saying of there are people that need to look, we need to, to all learn for ourselves. But if we have a supportive community where we can make mistakes, just like I was saying with white feminism and with my privilege, with my black sisters, um, we need to be okay to be uncomfortable. And I want to know the difference. I want to have a marked difference between that and just reacting as opposed to having to think, oh, I'm being accused of something, therefore I don't have to think. That, that, is, that is what we have to eliminate. Any kind of action that says I can just respond and not have to think is trouble. <laughs> Thanks a lot for that, Cass. Um, I think th this issue, I, it's a problem when, when we use that as a reason to kind of excuse the fact that as soon as a woman accuses a man of sexual misbehaviour of any kind, immediately it's, well, what was she wearing? What did she say? What was she doing? And I, th I don't think we should let our sympathy or our compassion for men afraid of such a situation, like get in the way of, of tackling that, that kind of attitude and those kind of questions. There's no other kinds of crime that prompt a series of questions. You don't go and say, oh my God, I've been burgled. And I'm say, well, had you locked your doors properly? Are you sure we had the locks on? Do you change your route home every night? Ooh, what time do you go to bed? Do you leave the lights on? It doesn't happen, does it? It doesn't happen. Um, anyone else have anything anything on that? Um, we're down to the last five minutes. So I'm just going to have a quick look and see what's on that box. Okay. I've... I'll say quickly, um, Marie, okay. I think... One, sorry, just quickly. One of the issues I think that has been brought up recently that has been championed very, very well, and I'm really sorry I don't have the names of the women that are championing it, is, is that of consent. And I believe that um, Michaela Coles, I Will Destroy You, that has really opened up the conversation in regards to consent and the fact that I'm, I'm, no excuses, I believe men have decided that they are confused as to when consent stops and when it begins, et cetera, et cetera, but no means no. And I think th these are the things that need to be pummeled home. Um, and unfortunately, it might come to a stage where men are gonna end up in situations where more prosecutions because of the fact that women are understanding, I said, I said no and something you know, untoward happened after because it's psychologically traumatizing for women. And I think that men also need to understand body language and understand that sometimes if a woman is rigid or not responding the way that you think, that that's a no, that's not consent. And it's more about consent and understanding what consent is and doing the due diligence to make sure you get the consent. I think those are the things that, you know, are starting to be, um, you know, explored in conversations now. And I think women, you know, are starting to definitely feel more empowered. So 
The problem is when you get into the point that you're empowered because you've lied down, you know, you're, you're on your back and they're about to be on top of you and you've said no then, it's still no. And the problem is that women get to this point where they're thinking, oh, but I went to his bedroom or I went to, it doesn't matter. No means oh. no. And that's it. Thanks, Mel. Um, right. Um, Jane Strange, the, the questioner who brought this up, um, says, I think that fear, that particular one of being false accused, leads to closing ranks and dismissing allegations against others on the false assumption of shared values. And I think that is a valuable point. The, the guys who do this, they want to think, well, I wouldn't do that. And they immediately assume that this other fellow wouldn't do that either. I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where you might have mentioned to a male colleague or friend or relative that you're getting a kind of creepy vibe, a kind of harassy vibe of somebody. And the response has been, oh, I'm sure he wouldn't mean it like that. He's not like that. If you do say that thing that, right, he put his hand on my shoulder, but he just left it on a little bit too long, or it was a little bit too low down or a little bit high up. And you know, you know what you felt, but your male colleague, friend, relative doesn't get it. He assumes he's a perfectly nice guy. He's nice to him. They get on fine. He does assume they've got that shared value. And that's, we do need to combat that. And that was a really important, a really important point made there. You're gaslighting exactly, Mel. Right, I think we must be about down to the wire. Are we down to the wire? Just about. Yeah, friends. just about. Just yeah. about. Well, in that case... Sorry, I'd can like I make to... a... Yes, yes. Go, on, go, 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 go. Yeah, I just wanted to make a couple of concluding comments about about what the unions need to do. Um, maybe I've got RMG at the front of my head, but I think I'm in all the unions as well. Um, I know GMB, for example... Um, recently had a, a, a damning report on sexism and bullying within within the union, and hopefully they'll act on that. I think it's really important that everyone here who's a trade unionist, okay, um, well, first of all, we ins we deal with the issue within the union. We stop sweeping it under the carpet. We stop pretending that um, someone because someone's a good trade unionist, they can't possibly be a racist or a sexist or, or what have you. I also think the unions... Look, we have to look at the diversity of the membership and then look at the diversity in the officers and leaders and see if they're the same. And you'll note that the higher you look up the pyramid, the fewer female black and brown faces you see. Um, we also need to think about how we, how we uh, debate and disagree with each other because, first of all, to assert that it's important that we're allowed to do that, we are allowed to criticise our leaders, we are allowed to disagree with the, the line that, you know, that other people think. However, you disagree, it's important that we disagree with what people say, not with who they are. So um, there's a rule in football that when you tackle someone, you have to play the ball and not the player, okay? If you, if you make contact with a player's legs, then that's a yellow card for you, okay? You're going to make contact with the ball. We should have the same rule in trade unions and in politics, okay? which is you tackle the ball, not the player. You argue with what someone says, not with them as a person. You don't go, you're wrong, you're mad, you're this, you're that, okay? You say, I disagree with what you said, and this is why. 
I finally, I think in the, in the, in the unions, all of us, we all, we all need to learn. We need to learn by listening to each other. We need to recognise that we can all get these things wrong. We've all said things in the past that we wouldn't say now. Um, we can all uh, become stronger and support each other better. So um, I think an event like tonight is exactly the sort of thing we need to help that process go. And I look forward to there being many, many more of them. Brilliant. Thanks very much for those closing thoughts. And a big thank you to Socialist Think Tank for hosting this meeting and the brilliant technical support that we've had. And I'm sure we all look fantastic on YouTube. Um, I haven't <laughs> I don't checked, think so. Actually. Yeah, and I just encourage uh, no, people to check, to check well, out. No filters. I want filters. Uh, well, thanks very much. It's been brilliant and see you all soon and i hope we've got lots to take away and in the words of cat fuck the patriarchy <laughs> okay thanks a lot guys yay <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks a lot